0: So I came across this meme recently. So people who bring paper bibles, physical bibles look down on those of us who use electronic versions. By the way, I rarely, I have one on my desk that I refer to, but I rarely use a paper bible anymore and I'm a pastor. It's all electronic for me. So if that gives you uh, any freedom giddy up, but Uh, Listen, whether you have a physical Bible or a smartphone app, either way, set it aside. We won't need the Bible this morning. Uh, Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take the time to share with you some of my thoughts and opinions on politics. Um, We'll talk about Biden and Trump and gas prices, inflation and immigration, foreign policy. It'll be good. I know I have your attention with that, but some of you, your hackles would go up on that, right? Right? Because you would think, wait a minute, that's not what this time is for. This is a time where we want to hear from God, from his word, not the opinions of Rick. Exactly. Exactly. So i got to warn you, today will be a very unique sermon. Basically, this will be a topical sermon on the Bible that is made necessary by some verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me tell you what's been going on. As we go through 1 Corinthians, in chapters 5 and 6, it was a lot about sexual immorality. And as we rolled over, uh, Pastor Jared led us there last Sunday. We rolled over into chapter 7. The first five verses were about sex being a good reason to get married and the value of sexual intimacy in marriage. And some, for some of you, those became your memory verses, right? That's, that's, that's my life verse right there. You went home, you stenciled that above your ma- marriage bed. That's, that's beautiful. That's good. So that's what was going on there. Now, in the rest of chapter 7, he's going to be talking a lot about singleness and marriage and divorce. That's what's coming up. But as we wade through the rest of chapter 7, there are going to be some things that are in there that are going to make us wonder about the very nature of the scriptures themselves. Like, why do we look at these ancient books every Sunday? Why do we care about the opinions of some old men? Like, why do we care about that? I'll show you what I mean. Look, look at some of these. So here's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. I won't read all this. I highlighted in red there some relevant portions. Paul says, now as a concession, not a command. I say this. Wait, time out. I thought this was the command of God, the like word of God. What do you mean it's not a command? Okay, well, skip down to verse 10 through 13 there. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. Is it from Paul or the Lord? Like, that that's a little confusing. And then you look down, I, I highlighted and read another. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Okay, wait a minute. So this is specifically not from, I thought it was the word of God. And then you jump down to verses 25 through 28. He says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment. Wait, what? So, Today, we are not going to be getting into all these issues yet about uh, singleness and marriage and marrying under believers and divorce and all that. That's the following weeks. But before spending our time studying this stuff, we got to say, why? Why do we care about Paul's opinion? Seems like these verses are just his opinion. So like, if I had started this morning saying, hey, instead of the word of God, I'm just going to share my opinion, some of you would say, hey. Slip out of the row. If we get out of here quick, we can get to another church on time. There'll be no donuts but less traffic and hopefully some Bible, right? And so I get that. I get that. So is this stuff simply Paul's opinion or is it the word of God? Like when you look at those red portions I just put together, there. For The uniqueness of this sermon is this, that though we are studying our way through 1 Corinthians, we're going to hit pause on that, we're going to basically zoom out and spend some time looking at the very nature of the Bible itself. Because if I don't tie this off, it'll be really a hindrance to the coming weeks when we hit these red portions, okay? So that's what we're going to be doing. Basically, I'm going to be giving you an orthodox theology about the Bible, how many of you just yawned? Okay, repent. Repent of that, okay? But, but buckle in. Listen, I am taking you to seminary class this morning. That's why this is my ridiculous attempt to dress like a seminary professor, okay? Uh, but there it is. Uh, and, and so some of you are like, yeah, look, last week, Pastor Jared got to talk about sex. I get bibliology, right? This is just not fair, but there it is. There it is. So this, this morning is going to feel a little bit different. There's no doubt about it. I have a ton of slides. No apology there. I'm a seminary prof, prof right? Okay. So, uh, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Listen. Every Sunday morning, we spend over half our time in these worship services, digging into the Bible, and you ought to know Why? as a disciple of Jesus Christ you got to have a firm grasp on why we don't dig into the bible why we care about it so what, I'm going to give you six quick quick points on this number 1 is this we start with Jesus always start with Jesus okay start with Jesus and I'm going to give you some apologetics about who Jesus is I'm going to admit up front it's a gloss uh, and you're going to need to do more looking into it on your own if interested. But uh, I, I want to begin with the trilemma. Maybe you've heard about this, sometimes called Lord Liar Lunatic. I've given you some fantastic, a fantastic quote from C.S. Lewis on that in the past. This morning what I'm going to do is walk you through this flowchart right there. So Jesus made some wild, wild claims. To be the Son of God, basically to be God Himself, to be eternal, like wild claims. Now, with those claims of Christ, you got to do something. Like, you got two alternatives. Either those claims were false or they were true. Now, if His claims were false, you have two alternatives under that. Maybe He knew His claims were false, which means He was deliberately deceiving. He is a liar. Jesus is a liar or work up a little bit there. Maybe he didn't know the claims were false, in which case he's sincerely deluded. Sweet man, he's a lunatic. He's a liar or a lunatic. Or if you go to the first branch up there, his claims were not false, his claims were true. And therefore, he is the Lord. And of course, you can accept or reject. Now, that is a A problem posed to everyone because of the history of Jesus Christ. Of course, when you study the life of Jesus Christ, you come to the easy and obvious conclusion that he is not a liar and he is not a lunatic. So guess what? He's the Lord. He's the Lord. Another approach to Jesus is to look at his resurrection. His resurrection, really, there's no other way to explain the facts of history. Uh, I mean, attempts have been made, they're ridiculous, they're discredited. It is quite clear, Jesus rose from the dead by studying the history of it. It's the proof of who he is. And so you got guys like Lee Strobel. Maybe you recognize his name. He was an investigative journalist with the Chicago Tribune, and uh, an atheist. His wife came to faith in Jesus, No bueno from Lee's perspective. He didn't like that. So he decided to apply his craft and investigate to discredit Christianity to prove it's wrong. The problem was he encountered the resurrection, among many other things. He ended up coming to faith in Jesus, wrote some books, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, if you recognize those titles. We recommend them. We have a recommended reading list on our website. Those are on there. He's basically a great apologist uh, for Jesus at this point. Now, if those are, seem too top shelf for you, something on the lower shelf is a book called More Than a Carpenter because I admit to you right now, I'm glossing over this and, and you got to do more study. We give this book away at our welcome kiosk. You're welcome to grab a copy for free and uh, look at some of the apologetics, the proofs for who Jesus is. What's that have to do with the Bible? <laughs> okay, so the first point is Jesus is the Lord, okay? Just write that one down, okay? The second point is this. What's that got to do with the Bible? Well, next what you go to is Jesus' view of the scriptures. How did, He quoted from them extensively. He referred to the scriptures as the word of God, that it was from God. He viewed the scriptures as authoritative and binding, as historically accurate, completely true, unbreakable, eternal. You look through the Gospels, Jesus viewed the Scriptures like that. In fact, here's a real professor, John Wenham, a professor of theology, he said this, To Christ, the Old Testament was true, authoritative, inspired. To him, the God of the Old Testament was the living God. The teaching of the Old Testament was the teaching of the living God. To him, what Scripture said, God said. Now you see why it's relevant? Because you could say, "Well, well, who cares what Jesus thinks about it? I mean, if he's a liar or a lunatic, really, I agree, who cares? thing is, he's the Lord. And since he's the Lord, his view of Scripture should be your view of Scripture. That's why it matters. That's why it matters. All right, so Jesus is the Lord, high view of the scriptures, but, point three, uh, that's just the Old Testament. You understand, when Jesus referred to the scriptures, there's no New Testament. It's just the Jewish scriptures, which we call the Old Testament. So does the New Testament get lumped into his view of the scriptures? Well, Paul knew that he was writing scripture. Look at this. First Corinthians, that's our letter. When we get to verse 14, we'll find this in verse 37 and 38. Paul said, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. See that, it, Paul knew he was writing scripture. <laughs> well, that's convenient for Paul, isn't it? But his, so his contemporaries, so we'll jump over to 1 Peter. Right? You're like, there's a lot of slides. I told you that! Right? 1 Peter chapter 3. So here's the Apostle Peter writing about the Apostle Paul. Look what he says. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. How comforting is that? The Apostle Peter found Paul's letters hard to understand. I'm like, okay, I'm in good company, right? Hard to understand, but look at this which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You got the Apostle Peter saying what Paul's writing over there? That's Bible, that's scripture. See, both the Old Testament and the New Testament are the word of God. And so we have verses like that of Second Timothy that says all scripture is, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Remember, they just, they weren't all gender inclusive in their language back then. We would say the man or woman of God would be equipped. But the point is on the front end there, all scripture is breathed out by God. It is the word of God. Okay? Revelation, right from the man, mind of God, uh, exactly as he intended it, every single word, what the Bible says, God says. Period. Well, at least in the original languages. So that's point four, okay? So point three is both Old and New Testament. Point four is uh, original languages. So remember, it was written in Hebrew and some Aramaic and Greek, the original texts, New Testament and Greek. But, uh, our modern English translations, some aren't so good, uh, but a lot of them, uh, man, are just solid, reliable. But, but you got to understand, when you translate into another language, some errors can be made. If you ever hear me speak Spanish, you'll know that, okay? <laughs> you'll know that quite clearly. So, uh, yeah, errors get made. But we're talking about the original language manuscripts. Now, uh, if you're like, well, what translations are good? We did an entire podcast. It was the very first podcast we did of Redemption unscription, uh, Unscripted was of uh, Bible translations and what to use and all that. We recommend the English Standard Version. That's what we put up on slides. There are other good ones and there are bad ones but we are talking in the originals. It's worth saying. Won't spend much time there. Let's go and do point number five. If it's the word of God, that means a couple things then. It means a couple things. Firstly, it means that it is inerrant, without error. Why? Because God doesn't lie. God doesn't lie. He doesn't make mistakes. So look at Titus chapter one, verse two. In hopes of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Psalm twelve six. the words of the Lord are pure words. John 17, 17 in quotes, because this is quoting Jesus. Jesus was praying and he said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It's inerrant. Now, sometimes you'll have somebody who'll say, well, you know, the Bible's just full of errors. Really? Okay. Um, where? That's that's you. You'll often hear crickets at that point, like you know, radio sounds. Radio, well, I. Um, well, you know, I. Uh, well, uh, and so it's sometimes, sometimes they'll be able to uh, point out some apparent difficulty or contradiction. And so then I'll ask, okay, well, when you did your fair research, also looking into pro-Bible scholars in their response to that apparent difficulty, like, I'm sure you've looked at Gleason Archer's book, The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. And when, when you looked at that, uh, why did you not find his answer satisfying? Well, I, uh, you know, the <laughs> same, same thing. Uh, and so, uh, listen, a, a lot of the apparent difficulties are very, very, very thin and easily understandable. So a, a common one to point out is that in the Gospels, when they go to the tomb of Jesus, after he's risen and he's not there, uh, they find, well, one account says there's one angel, and another account says there's two angels. Uh-oh. Got a problem. Okay. Say somebody leaves here this morning and says, I went to Redemption Chapel, and Pastor Rick was there. Somebody else leaves and says, I went to Redemption Chapel and Pastor Rick and Pastor Jared was there. Who was right? Both. Boy, sitting right there. (laughs) Like, we were both there. One guy focused on me, the other guy focused on both of us. Now, somebody else leaves and says, Pastor Rick was the only pastor there. Eh. Wrong answer. But that's not what's in the gospel. Nobody says there was one and only one angel. You see, oh, oh. Wait, it's that simple? Yeah, yeah, it's that simple. And so you got uh, Professor Norm Geiser says, the Bible is without error, the critics are not. That's legit, that's legit. So the the first thing that flows in, in our fifth point here is firstly, it is inerrant. But secondly, that means since it's the word of God, it is alive. It is revelation from the living God who loves you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this. For, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When you open that Bible, whether physical or electronic, does not matter. You are not reading a dusty, stale old book. You are hearing from the living God. It's alive. Well, sixth point is this. But, but wait a minute. Wasn't it written by imperfect men? Like how do you get it? so then we go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 and following says this. Knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right, what's that mean? Well, it means it's not mechanical dictation. Mechanical dictation is if I'm some big old boss and I have a scribe writing it down. And and maybe so so God says, knowing this first of all, and Peter goes, Great, knowing this first of all, what's next? That no prophecy and prophecy of scripture. Got it, God, no pro-. and so God says a word, Peter writes it down, boom, boom, mechanical dictation. That's not it. How do we know that? Well, in the sixty six books of the Bible, there are over forty different authors. And because of that, there are, you read them, they use different sets of vocabulary and personality and style and all that. If it's just God dictating, we wouldn't get that. There'd just be God's personality, God's vocabulary. You know, you see that? So now you got these authors and it's woven in. So what happened? Well, evidently that the Holy Spirit so superintended those people's lives, vocabulary, situation, experience, all that, that what they wrote down was the very word of God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What they wrote was the word of God. Now, so that you can geek out my little seminarians, uh, what I've been teaching you is the verbal plenary view of inspiration. If I gave you that up front, you'd be like, I don't like it. But uh, there it is. is. So verbal means word or words. Plenary means everything. Okay, so every word of the Bible is inspired by God. It is a very high view of the Bible. Yes, it will be on the test, because that's what we ask in classroom. Would this be on the test? No, that's not. Some of you are asking, can we go back to talking about sex? Stop it, okay, stop it. All right, we're not, we're not even done yet, okay? We're not, class ain't over. So, because what we need to talk about next is the canon of scripture. There's a canon in scripture? How cool is that? No, no, no. No. Canon with one N. Okay? It's a different word. And what that means is the standard or the measure. Okay? It's the standard of scripture. Okay? It's what gets us to why are some books in and some out. You remember as we go through Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote four books, excuse me, four letters to the church in Corinth. Only two of them are canon, are scripture. How do you know? Right? How do you know? Well... 66 books in the Bible. 39 of them are Old Testament. Those are the Jewish scriptures. Those were very clear. Those are carried forward. That's our Old Testament. When you come to the New Testament, those 27 books, we have three tests. And one is apostolic authority that it was either authored by or affirmed. It was under the authority of an apostle. Secondly, harmony with other scriptures. Right? (laughs) One book says, Jesus is the only way. And the other book says... No, there's many ways. Oops, that doesn't harmonize, right? So it's not right. So it's kind of harmonized with the other scriptures. And then uh, thirdly, it was recognized by the church. That doesn't mean the church made them scripture. It means that God made them scripture and the church clearly recognized them as the quality that they are. I know that's kind of boring to you. So uh, let me make it a little more interesting. What does that rule out? Have you heard of the apocryphal books? A lot of people in this area are from a Catholic background. You know, wait a minute. The Catholics, they have more books in their Bible, don't, don't they, more than we do? Those are the apocryphal books. What are they, and should they be in the Bible or not? So these were written in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They are late Jewish scholars. They're Jewish books. Oh, by the way, the Jews don't recognize them as Bible either. They'd say, nope, that's not Scripture. That doesn't mean they're bad to read. But they're not scripture. Most Christians did not recognize them as scripture either uh, until the 1500s. What happened in the 1500s? The Protestant Reformation. And what happened in the Protestant Reformation is we looked in scripture and said, What the church is teaching on so That's wrong. It's not in the Bible, it contradicts the Bible. So now the Catholics were on their heels and said, we've got to find a way to justify our beliefs from the Bible. So something like purgatory, I challenge you, look in the 66 books of the Bible that were accepted as Scripture at the time. Find purgatory. Ain't happening. It's not in there. So what happened is the Catholics then found these these old apocryphal books and said, oh, there it is. These are now scripture. They became scripture for Catholics in, 15, in 1546. And if you're going, that sounds shady, you're paying attention. Okay? So that's the apocryphal books. Or how about, how about this? How many of you read Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code? I did. Great fiction. Very entertaining fiction. I'll say fiction again. Fiction because really not so good for your understanding of Bible, because uh, it's, well, what's the word? Fiction. It's fiction, right? It's fiction, All right. So uh, what it put on the radar for a lot of Americans are the Gnostic Gospels, the so-called Gnostic Gospels, and they don't pass these three tests. That's why they're not in the Bible. I'll give you an example. A very well-known one is the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas was written in, we're not exactly sure, but anywhere from 130 to 180 AD. Do some math. Thomas was one of the apostles. You need apostolic authority. Thomas would have been long dead by the time the Gospel of Thomas was written, okay? As well, on the third one, it was clearly the early church rejected, recognized this is not scripture. And so it was lost, and then it was not rediscovered until 1945 in Egypt. Which means if it's Bible, God screwed up for 1,900 years. Big time. But then there's the second problem, harmony with other scriptures. All right, you ready for this? Here's saying 114 from the Gospel of Thomas. Gems like this are in there. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Oh, Dan Brown didn't tell you that? Yeah, that's in there. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Any guys want to raise their hand and go, that sounds like Bible to me? And we will make popcorn and sit back and watch the women kill you, right? (laughs) But here's the thing, our women aren't the standard. The Bible's the standard. And when you read that, you go, wait a minute, that is in such contrast to how Jesus viewed and treated women. That's not Bible. That's not Bible. So I'm just giving you a feel for how the canon works, how we understand that there are 66 books in the Bible and others are not Bible, clearly not Bible. Now, having done our work on all that, now we bring it full circle back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because remember, 1 Corinthians is in the canon. It is the word of God. And you have these red, highlighted red verses right there. What do you do with those? Well, in the first and the last case, what you have going on there is Paul is clearly giving in the word of God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, he is given divinely inspired advice. But not command, not requirement, such that if you stay single or if you get married, either way, you're not in sin. That is the word of God. It's authoritative. So if somebody says, if you get married, you're in sin, or if somebody says, if you stay single, you're in sin, they're wrong because we've got it in the Bible. That's what's going on right there. When you get to verse 10, uh, the second line right there, uh, where he says, not I, but the Lord. What Paul's doing at that point, he's writing stuff about marriage. and He says, hey, not not me, but, but Jesus. He's referring to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19. He's basically saying, yep, yeah, this is Bible. Yep, I'm writing it out for you. But what I'm saying is not fresh. This is stuff Jesus already said. Now, when he's done doing that, he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now he has to clue them in that, hey, I'm done quoting what Jesus already said. I'm not going to pretend like Jesus said this. But he's still writing Bible. It's still the word of God. So, uh, it was a little bit of a clever thing I did to highlight it in red. The point is that in the Bible, there are no red letters, right? When they were written, there was no red ink. Some of you have red letter where Jesus' words are in red. I have them as well. That's not bad. That's okay. But you just got to understand, there's no difference between red and black in the Bible, It's all the word of God. It's all the word of God. And I need you to remember that in the coming weeks when we wade into chapter seven and you hit these things and you go, what? It's all the word of God. So that's seminary class. You did well, you did well. We'll see how you do on the test. But you are in seminary class, so you get homework. I know you were hoping for that. Uh, if you take out your phones, point at the screen, you'll get a link. You can hit that link. You can hold on to that link. Here's why we created that web page that you see uh, behind that QR code. And there's some links that we put together for you on there. The f- top one is an article on apologetics for the Bible. Why? It's written by Norm Geisler. The Bible is without air, The critics are not. Norm Geisler. Uh, uh, and what that, that article will do, look, there's so much more to it. There's there's uh, archaeology, there's fulfilled prophecy, there's textual criticism, way beyond the scope of what I can do in a sermon. There's a, an article for you. The second link is if you want more about Jesus' view on the Old Testament. Like I said, I glossed it. Now you can dig in and see, wow, Jesus really thought a lot of the Old Testament. So that, that link's there for you. Uh, the third link is the Chicago Statement on uh, Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, basically, that teases out the verbal plenary view of inspiration and will help you fall asleep at night. So, but that's there for you to dig into that. Uh, then the next link is, I told you, our first Redemption Chapel, uh, Redemption Unscripted podcast was on various translations of the Bible. There's a link to that podcast. Uh, The next link down there is uh, a link to a spot on our website where we give you resources so that you, yourself, can dive into the Word of God. Why? Because it is the Word of God, right? And you need it, and so there's resources for you to do that. And then lastly there, uh, I had Gary give you a link to watch a sermon that I did less than a year ago. We went through the series Habits of Spiritual Survival. I preached a sermon on the Word of God uh, because this has been all like seminary-like and that's actually like a sermon. Uh, It might be a little bit more helpful for you, okay? So there's some resources. Now, what if you have so far this morning been tuning me out thinking I hate seminary? (laughs) This is your time to rejoin, to tune back in. Join me again and here's why. Uh, I want to do some so what now what so what what do we do with that as as believers think of yourself big old human being and you want to communicate with some ants okay some ants now these ants their tiny little brains like How in the world are they, 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 you're just like a building to them. You're a big rock, you're a big tree. They don't know, right? They have no idea. How would they discover who you are? How would they know your name? How would they know your character? How would they know your abilities? How would they know your knowledge? Unless you reveal yourself to them, they're lost. And by the way, the gap between you and an ant is infinitesimally small when compared to the gap between you and the infinite God. Unless he came to us and revealed himself to us, we are lost. We've got nothing, nothing, nothing. And so he did. He came to us, revealed himself to us, had things written down for us, and it is precious, it is invaluable, it is delightful like honey. Like honey. In fact, that's what Psalm 119 says about it. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I'd be lost without it. It's sweet. In fact, look what Jesus said about it. Matthew chapter 4. He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus put that in quotes because he was quoting from Deuteronomy. That's an area where he's talking about the manna. If you know that story where there was like daily bread from heaven that disappeared every day, you had to renew it every day, every day, every day. He's saying it's daily bread. Does yesterday's meal satisfy today? No. Some of you are hungry right now. And you just ate a couple hours ago, right? And so we we need to be in the word on our own daily and that's why we have those resources on the website. That's what you do Monday through Saturday. Now the question is, why do we pour into these books every Sunday during these times? And the answer is because I'm commanded to. Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor, and here's what he had to say to him in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Does Paul sound serious? Deadly serious right now. And here's what he says. Preach the word. You know, underline that. Preach the the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And sadly that can describe some celebrity pastors tickling people's ears. Preach The word. Preach the word. That's why we do it on Sunday mornings. Now, one last so what that I will give to you. Since it's the word of God, we do not correct it. It corrects us. We should approach the word of God with humility, with submission. We're going before our God. We're saying, God, teach me, please. Help me learn right now. Now remember, the context of these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is all about marriage and divorce and sexual immorality, and that is where we get defensive, isn't it? So defensive. And God says this stuff, and we don't like it, and we need to correct him. We need to set God straight. You think what's going on in our society, listen, do murders happen and rapes and theft? Yes, those things happen. But where is it that most Americans are screwing up? Marriage, divorce, sexual immorality. And we get so tender in that area, we get so defensive. And so what we say is, I'll go to church, I'll dabble in Christian religion, but don't let God dare to tell me that my divorce was wrong. Don't let him dare tell me how I should conduct myself sexually. Who the heck does he think he is? And in that case, we are not under the word, we are over the word. It does not correct us, we correct it. Hashtag dumpster fire. Dumpster fire. And that's what was going on in Corinth. So, while this has been a unique sermon, I grant you about a theology of the Bible, it is really basic Christianity. Here's the questions Is there a God? Is there a God? Is he Lord over me? And will I humbly submit to his word and learn from him? Or will I dare to correct his word? It's basic stuff. And my hope for you as your pastor is that you will be able to say along with John Wesley, this is, I'll leave you with this. This is my favorite quote about the Bible. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. And my prayer for you is that you will be a man or a woman of one book book let me pray for you father in heaven thank you for the opportunity that we have as your children to hear from you that you condescended you stooped to us little ants and revealed what we would never know otherwise and that you poured into us and you gave us your word That we might know you and, and know ourselves and how to walk with you and to be in relationship with you. And without it, we're lost. And we repent of the fact that we treat it so cheaply. And may we just be men and women of one book. And we pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.